Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. My guest today is Ling Zhang, who is an associate professor in the history department at Boston College. She holds a bachelor's and a master's degree from Peking University and an MPhil and a BBPhil from the University of Cambridge. She's currently an associate in research here at the Fairbank Center and the convener for our Environment in Asia series. Her latest book is The River, the Plain and the State, an environmental drama in northern Song, China, 1048 to 1128. Her book was published by Cambridge University Press and is the winner of the 2017 George Perkins Marsh Prize for Best Book in Environmental History from the American Society for Environmental History. So Ling, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In your biography that you have on your website, uh, you describe yourself as an environmental, economic, political historian of pre-modern China. Yes. What do you mean by that? It's complicated. I started my training as an economic historian, including agriculture, handicrafts, industry in North China during the so-called Tangsong transition. But gradually, I realized there were enormous records in regards of environmental disasters. So that's why I moved to environmental history, because logically, I think it's quite easy to understand if there were constant rainfall, there was enormous disasters that would change the microclimate or weather pattern that will influence the performance of agriculture and people's normal everyday life. So I think that's related to economic history. I realized I began to talk more about political history, or let's say the perspective of political ecology and a political economy became the dominant theme of my research. So it's hard to describe my own work, so I decided I'm just going to, for convenience, I'm going to put three of them out there. A good sort of hyphenated. I, <laughs> I know, right? The more you talk to academics, mm-hmm. the more you realize their research should be hyphenated as a <laughs> multidisciplinary approach to China. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, your latest book is The River, the Plain, and the State. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a historical look at the development of environmental problems in China. And it starts with this particular date of July 19th, mm-hmm. 1048, mm-hmm. Uh, which is the date when the Yellow River breaches its banks and transforms the Hebei Plain. Mm-hmm. Talk us through what happened on that day. Right. Yellow River had been problematic, let's say, flood-prone for quite many decades before that particular day. And so it wasn't that strange why the river would flood. But it was really dramatic for that particular day. The river breached its northern bank. So quite surprisingly, the entire water body just pushed northward toward Hebei. And then within almost two, three days, the flood, the, the mainstream of the Yellow River, cough open in the central part of the entire Hobbit Plain and basically splitting it in half. And this is something quite unexpected because the majority of the Yellow River's flood in the previous decade tended toward the south toward Henan, suddenly we saw this phenomenon that a river surged through the heart of Hebei, and this happened only in the Han Dynasty. So it was a dramatic phenomenon, 10 centuries apart between Western Han and then the Northern Song Dynasty, suddenly the river returned to Hebei. 
So after this flood, mm-hmm. your book describes the political ramifications of what happened. Mm-hmm. Talk us through the impact that this flood has mm-hmm. on the Northern Song Dynasty at right. the time. If you don't mind, I would like to introduce my vision of this flood as a drama. And I think that the political implication played out as a component or part of that drama. The Song State is right in the middle of its 160 years history. So the state it was experiencing at that time all kinds of stress. Political stress, for instance, different political factions fighting against each other. Military stress. The state just ended military tension with the Xixia Tangguo, and also military threats by the Kitan Liao Dynasty. So all kinds of things were happening. Suddenly, we saw the state as a major actor encounter this violent river. So these leading actors, in my view, they intensify the encounter. And then they stage this dramatic event. So, what's the implication on the politics of Northern Song State? The flooding river left the political, cultural, economic core region of the state. So. For the state who had engaged painstakingly in river management without very little success, the river's departure was not too bad a thing. So at the beginning, the state was pretty happy, but several months later, we began to see the political voices start to diverge. One group of people would say, "Let's celebrate this event, keep the river away from the core of the state." Seize this moment, right? And then the second group of people would say, "Well, wait a minute. If the river flows all the way to the north, and in winter time we know the river in the north will freeze, that will actually land our enemy, the Kitan of the Liao people in the north, a flat land for them to cross the river to invade us again. We'd better to bring the river back at whatever cost." So in the next ten years, we began to see this hydraulic struggles between these two different political factions pushing against each other. So in a sense, the state was paralyzed by not only this environmental phenomenon, but also by the separation of a political opinion within its governing apparatus. So the next eighty years of the Northern Song's political history, we can witness this kind of cyclical pattern. Every ten years, this kind of a river-related political debate resurfaced again. So. Keep the river in the north, or bring it back. So this kind of debate, repeated all the time, depends on which political faction won that debate or won the favor of the monarch. For instance, the Wang Anshu's reform, the new law reform, gained power, and they basically supported the idea to bring the river back to Henan. So the government invested enormous manpower, like half millions of people, laborers, and then used all of them to build dikes in order to make the river come back to Henan. There's a pattern of Song government's politics. So this remains consistent with the other scholars' observation of Song political history. River management, environmental management, was constantly being burdened by the highly Fractional and polarized politics in Northern Song Dynasty.
even in contemporary China, we talk a lot about how this river really is right. pinnacle to a lot of Chinese history right. and really influences not just the environment around it, but also China's interaction with that river. Right. In your book, you describe managing the river as a hydraulic mode of consumption. What do you mean in terms of consumption here? You right. spoke previously about political control right. and influence, but what right. about consumption? Right. Uh, you are perfectly right. Actually, two days ago I, or three days ago, New York Times just published this article talking about scholar, scientists and uh, uh, hydrologists, and they discovered the new way which can potentially forever quell the Yellow River, things like that. So this partly speaks to this idea of consumption, this endless investment in river-related issues. So everyday life is constantly tied up with the condition of the river, and that is a taxing. So that was uh, what I mean about consumption. But I brought up this concept precisely to argue against an existing notion which was brought up by um, Carl Wittfogel, and uh, what he said was something called hydraulic mode of production. The idea of a production uh, means if we engage in hydraulic works, our engagement in that kind of work will generate the possibility for the increase of political power. So hydraulic leader, by engaging in hydraulics, they can mess up political power around them. By raising political power, financial power, controlling labors to engage in hydraulic works, the external environment could be tamed. So the environment, the hydraulic uh, conditions of rivers or lakes, they will be tamed, turned into something productive for human society. So ordinary people, they will benefit from the controlled environment. They will live a better life. So, from the ordinary people point of view, they're willing to go along with a hydraulic leader, turn him or that organization or that institution into a political leader as well. So here, political power and the environmental stability, it seems, goes hand in hand. And what I try to argue against here is, did it really happen whether or not we can really see consistent occurrence or a consistent success in our effort of control, and then whether or not by controlling environmental conditions out there, the so-called leaders can actually really gain power. So this is a doubtful as well. So by using this Song Dynasty history, I tried to examine actually this productive logic. So I looked a lot at these so-called consumptive logic here. In order to do this, what has to be consumed? What has to be invested in order to keep this kind of activity going on? And I realized what happened to, to the so-called hydraulic leader, the Song government here. The Song government felt, or often felt like it was caught in the uh, very unfortunate situation. It could not not react to the rivers of floods, but at the same time, it could not really successfully quell the river to achieve a certain kind of environmental serenity. 
that it did desired. So what's the situation here? The government was compelled constantly to throw the enormous portion of its revenue, enormous number of uh, laborers into the Yellow River related hydraulic projects. The more the state engaged in this kind of uh, uh, not very promising hydraulic environmental projects, the more the state was absorbed, being sucked into the black hole created by a far more unpredictable, far more powerful, the force of uh, the Yellow River. So that was kind of an un, um, unfortunate situation, the state, if we would like to use the word, the phenomenological life of the imperial state. That is the phenomenological life the state experienced a day and a night, the impasse, the un, unavoidable, inescapable life. So that's what I mean by consumption, not a consumption in our conventional economic sense. One of your uh, reviewers of this book actually brings up precisely this ebbing and flowing of right. not just the river, but the political right. debates that go with this river, and uses an example of how your book helps complicate existing narratives about the Tang Song transition. Right. So often the Tang Song transition is seen as being very productive, very right. innovative, and here you are suggesting that that's not necessarily the case. Right. I have to confess my book reads a little bit dark. A lot of people hoping to find a solution to deal with the climate change, global warming. A lot of people want to look back at history to say, hey, the previous time were actually better. And I feel like my book does not provide that kind of reassurance. So you're right, your observation about my book's complication of Tang Song transition. My previous goal was to complicate the story of economic success during the Tang Song transition precisely by bring in the story of North China. North China did not enjoy the same kind of a growth. So we have to admit the regional differences, the imbalanced regional development back in Tangsong time. So what this book offers is a environmental perspective to explain what happened to the material substances in North China, to the political economic complications in North China, and they provide a certain kind of explanation for my argument of North China not only did not enjoy the same rate of growth, but actually witnessed a dramatic economic downturn. And the environmental instability we are reading from this book contributed to and conditioned that kind of economic downturn. So Yes, you are perfectly right about the previous scholarship about Tamsung China. What we've read repeatedly that some China experienced a kind of revolutionary medieval economic growth. Technology and science experienced revolution. If we're going to follow a scholar like Mark Kelvin, we should say the kind of scientific technological revolution was never surpassed until modern times, right? Just basically everything then started to decline ever since the 12th century. That might be true, but it was only true for a certain part of China. That's really not true if we look at the North China, Northwestern China, Southwestern part of China. 
And if we need to rewrite economic history for that period, we need to bring in different regions. And if we really want to keep the right history from an empire perspective, let's talk about what kind of a production from those highly developed regions, how it was consumed, diluted by those endless hydraulic modes of consumption. Think about how much resources generated by economic, technological, scientific revolution were used and consumed. In certain ways, which did not contribute to the economic growth in other parts of China, if we balance out all these regional differences, can we still say that so-called China enjoyed a revolutionary economic growth? I highly doubt it. And it's interesting, actually, that you、mm -hmm. bring up almost、uh, the argument of shifting away from the core to the periphery、right. that many of our right, historians right, right. here also、mm -hmm. argue. I wanted to pick you up on something that you mentioned previously about how、uh, your book actually complicates、mm -hmm. some contemporary、right. ideas about the environment in China,、right. about how it was somehow sort of better in the past yeah, and has yeah, yeah. degraded ever since.、Yeah. And one thing that you、uh, do for us here at the Fairbank Center is run our Environment in Asia lecture series,、yeah. and this brings in speakers who research China and the environment, not just at Harvard but from、right. around the world,、uh, to come and talk at the Fairbank Center.、Right. Talk us through how you curate your lecture series to sort of bring all these different voices in. Right, right, right. So it has been my great pleasure, a wonderful learning experience, to convene this particular lecture series. And、um, I should acknowledge that this series was initiated by Professor Michael Muscolino, currently teaching at Oxford University, back in the fall of two thousand twelve. So our ideas. I think Michael initiated this, and then I kept his idea. Then I changed, modified it a little bit. Is to bring different perspectives of a different kind of disciplinary background into this research series. And all of us, as long as we are interested in not only the environmental issues in relation to China, but environmental issues in general, and we would like to approach these environmental issues. In kind of scholarly fashion, we should have created that kind of platform to give people opportunity to talk about their ideas. So that was the general idea at the beginning. From the beginning, we、uh, intended to invite more environmental historians who work on、uh, East Asia.、Uh, that's how we began. The idea was to introduce environmental histories for East Asia, or for more for China, into the Harvard campus. After I took over this series, my idea was we need to hear different voices from different disciplines in order for people. Who works on China to conduct environmental history? We need to learn environmental science. We need to learn about environmental sociology, environmental anthropology. We need to expose us to different voices, different methodologies. So to convene this research series, the、uh, the basic idea is to increase the exposure of all these different environmental related discipline to the Harvard community. And that community has really developed over the last few years. I think so. And、um, it's really been、right. pioneered by yourself. When you are convening these series and working with all these groups across campus and across、right. the Boston area, what lessons do you start to see developing from across the disciplines、right. 
that could be used to inform about China's contemporary environmental crisis? <laughs> this is a huge question, I must say. To simply talk about interdisciplinarity, it's easy, but to do it, it's really hard. We do not share the same methodologies. We do not share the same end goals. So what I learned in the past few years is, each of us is interested in China or Asia-related environmental issues. We are all keen to play a part in that, but how to do it? It seems very hard for people to agree upon. It's simply because we come from different disciplines, and what is counted as a problem, what is counted as a solution, nobody agrees on. So what I've learned in the past several years is never give up. You just have to keep doing this. You keep asking people to sit down with you. What I did in the past several years is I sought to create a very open, friendly, intimate environment, basically to reassure each of my guests.、Uh, we were not here to cross-examine you. We were here simply to hear what you can say, what you have to say. So gave each other the chance to speak and listen. I think that is the precondition for any serious. Collaborative interdisciplinary scholarship in relation to environmental study. So one very interesting change that we have seen is the increasing politicization of the environment. For our listeners in the future, this past week, Jerry Brown, the governor of California, just went to Beijing、right. um, in order to discuss <laughs> investment in renewable energy,、um, and he has this great quote. Which is, I didn't come to Washington. I went to Beijing,、um, as this sort of apparent. You know, everyone is、yeah. talking now about how Beijing is the new leader on the environment, which means that the environment is becoming very highly politicized, both in the U.S. and China.、Right. China for slightly different、yeah. reasons. Does that change how your group or yourself、mm -hmm. approaches the study、mm -hmm. of the environment in China? It complicates it, not solely in a negative way.、Um, honestly, since I turned. Myself, from a economic historian to environmental historian, I experienced quite some years of loneliness and solitude. <laughs>、um, well, let's admit it: the majority of our humanistic and social scientific scholarship focuses on human beings, our human activity, human societies.、Uh, the majority of our existing scholarship in relation to China is nothing about environment, nothing about trees, rivers, mountains. Or non-humans, or animals, even right, not to mention viruses. So it it has been a really lonely fight to say there's a voice, there's a something, they're important, right? We need to look beyond our human-centric concerns and our desires, ambitions. So I think all this so-called environment or ecology, climate change, global warming, these buzzwords, they're now become. I'm extremely hot. Their trendiness <laughs> contributed to the development of a highly marginalized scholarship. In this sense, this fashion popularization and politicization of so-called environment is a good thing. It attracts investment into this field. So even humanist scholars like me. It seems like I have a voice to say something. 
So all this increasing attention to environmental studies, um, it's good. But my worry is that any kind of scholarship touches upon the great variety of issues, deals with the enormous complexities. So solution is not a singular one as well. It's the same. So we need to pay attention to the diversity of the issues and the diversity of the scholarly inquiries and diversity of the methodologies. Not every single scholar. Scholars, especially scholars from the humanities and social science, will all go to visit high-ranked officials in Beijing to get several million dollars of investment to develop a solar panel or. Wind power facilities. It is not like that. Certain kind of environmentally related scholarship will touch upon the people in the highly marginalized regions and the people still struggling in socioeconomic poverties. So that is my concern. How to recognize the diversity of scholarship, the complexity of the research problems, how to redistribute research resources. Among the scholars, so each of us can possibly carry out our scholarship in our own ways, not to be swallowed by a homogeneous, homogenizing goal. That is very important. You're currently also working on two book manuscripts. You tell me,、um, one is North China during the medieval economic revolution,、mm-hmm. and the second is China's sorrow or the Yellow River's sorrow. Environmental biographies of a river community.、Mm-hmm. What direction are these book manuscripts taking your research in? Yeah, right. So the first manuscript that you mentioned in regards to economic history that's directly related to the questions that you asked before: how to complicate the. Overly positive view towards the Tangsong transition, but I am also doing the second book project on Yellow River. I'm extremely excited about this project because, in my mind right now, I'm thinking about how to go beyond the existing theoretical framework and methodological schemes to do something far more adventurous and far more creative. So when we are now going to talk about environmental issues, the dominant trend is. How are we going to preserve our environmental resources and better environmental conditions in order for our descendants, for our human species, to carry on? Underneath all this is the profound anthropocentrism, the human as the center of the planet, human species as the ultimate goal of. The existence of all other species and the entire Earth. Everything needs to be improved, to be to be preserved, in order for we human being to enjoy for longer time. And I think philosophically, ethically, all these things need to be challenged. As a historian, we need to rethink about what is history for. What is history writing for? Is history strictly a human history? Is writing history the sole job of humans? How can we tell history of non-humans? So, for that Yellow River book, I really wanted to go beyond our conventional inquiry about Yellow River, which equals human management of Yellow River, to really look at the Yellow River in itself. Now we face the issue: Is Yellow River a homogeneous, monolithic river? 
So that requires more theoretical thinking. A river consists of human beings, boats, fish, turtle, trees, water. Of course, it is an enormous community. It itself is a world. So I'm bringing up concept called environmental world to see how these different residents, citizens, or members of this Yellow River world communicate, interact with each other. Humans are just one group of the members of the Yellow River. So、uh, I'm very excited about this project. It's still brand new. It requires a lot of work, especially a lot of、uh, theoretical intervention. For instance,、uh, in the past several years, I've been asked many times, "How can a river write? How can you even understand? How is a tree accessible to a human? How can you tell、uh, a history of a sand, assuming you have the ability to?" So all these、uh, ontological, epistemological issues build upon this rising field of environmental philosophy and environmental ethics.、Um, these are the field I'm getting into in order to write a non-human history of the Yellow River. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Ling Zhang. And before you leave, we have our Fairbank Five. I have five quick questions. Our first question is: What is your favorite Chinese food? 水煮鱼，那四川 style spicy, spicy fish. Yes, it's in the big bowl. It's totally red with all these chili peppers are floating on top, and then the sliced fish fillet in it. I've been very into Sichuan food. I'm from Zhejiang region, so it's not that kind of food I grew up with. So I guess、um, that's why I'm drawn to this kind of strong flavor. That's uh, uh, something uh, so associated with my early twenties. I was. In Beijing, and then that was the moment Sichuan food started to thrive as a cheap street food, and I identify that. A lot of us identify that with the kind of flavor of our college years. My second question is your favorite saying. 随便 How do how do you translate 随便 Like oh, whatever's easiest. Whatever, Or, yes, like, yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah. You decide. I yeah, don't care. Whatever's yeah, convenient. Yeah, you do it. But it's so funny.、Um, uh, since you mentioned this, I re- I remember several times when I went to visit my doctors. In our lengthy conversation, at some moment, I just couldn't figure out what to say in English in order to express the idea of swabian. So I would spit out the swabian in front of this person's face, and they were just stunned, saying, "What is this weird sound?" I guess the swabian is deep in my bones. <laughs> Our third question:、uh-huh. Your favorite place in Greater China. The、uh, little tiny neighborhood next to Beida, Peking University. So when when I was there, I entered Beida in 1997. Certain part of Beida no longer there, and I I I I really enjoyed my several years there. You know those small xiao hu tong, those little little lanes, and、um, the certain smell. It took me quite a while to get used to it, to learn to like it, but now it's all gone. It's not even gentrified because I don't. It's a. It's a. It's definitely not this kind of gentrification we can see in Boston.、Yeah. It's it's very different. It just the、um, the liveliness or life itself seems like it's gone. A book on China that you've read recently that you would recommend. 
Can I mention two actually?、Sure. Yeah. So one thing is actually I would like to do something, especially with Professor Karen Sombon. Professor Thumbon specialized in environmental humanity, and I remember once when she gave a speech about environmental humanity, she mentioned all these science fiction sort of things. And in China, we have a rising stars in the field of the science fiction, and I've been reading a lot of Chinese science fiction. And the Three Body Problem, we all know that. We love that. We love that. I really enjoyed reading that, not because it's a Good piece of literature is not my kind of literature genre, but I spent a lot of time reading environmental humanity, and there's enormous literary studies and、uh, post-humanist studies and non-humanist studies associated with science fictions. The other little book I really highly recommend to everybody is related to Boston. Nothing about China. It's called The Soul of a Octopus. And、uh, it's written by a nature writer. So it's about how this writer spent years studying several octopus in the New England aquarium to observe their life and the death, their love and the hate. Is really to look into octopus as a species. How we human can possibly build some relationship with them. So it's really beautiful. It's really it really touches my heart. Well, our final question is a class that you took on China that changed your thinking in some way. The reason why I decided to major in history, I began my study at a Beida as an interdisciplinary humanities, and I was far more into philosophy. But I remember I took this undergraduate class with a professor called Liu Pujiang, Professor Liu. That was a history about the history of the Qitan,、uh, the Liao Dynasty. And I remember in one class, and he was describing this phenomenon called Chun Shui Qiu Shan, the Spring Water and Fall Mountain. Basically, talking about this group of nomads, they travel around in different seasons. They move to a different place. I thought that was extremely romantic. I was daydreaming, sitting in my classroom, of this stretchless grassland. People were on horseback. At the end of the junior year of my college, I went to a archaeological field trip to eastern in Mongolia to those、uh, sites of the Kitan. And I remember there was a one night the moon was huge, and those young men and women, after finishing their entire day's work, they went to this lake. They went there and bathing there. And then that scene was something so different. I, I definitely romanticized that. That's how I began my study of Tangsong period <laughs> that year. Well, Ling Jiang, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful, really fun experience. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your RSS feed.